Well, it's a joyful moment uh, to, to sing songs to the Lord and to hear God's Word, and as we will do right now in our uh, Sunday morning service. Uh, we're coming to God's Word here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's going to be from verse 50 to 58, so would you turn to that with me, and we will continue in our celebration this Sunday uh, for what God has done in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 to 58 it says these words, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the songs which we're able to sing, the celebration we're able to have, uh, just recollecting upon your grace in our lives. And now we're approaching really a last portion, last section on this uh, chapter on resurrection. And we know, Lord, that resurrection is the culminating truth which brings all things together to show that we have victory in Christ. So we pray that this morning we will celebrate. We will celebrate this fact of resurrection, the fact that Jesus resurrected, and the fact that we will also resurrect. And we thank you, God, for this truth. And help us, Lord, to be rejuvenated in our own minds, in our own soul, as we listen to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are a new you every seven years. <laughs> so what do you mean by that? Did you know that the human body is composed of 30 trillion cells, and about 300 billion of them gets replaced every single day. You don't have the same cells which you had when we were growing up. You have a new liver, you have brand new bones, you have new skin, you have new hair, that's obvious. You have many things in your body which are new. Now, there are some parts of your body that never gets replaced, but most of it is replaced on the average of every seven years. So you're not the person you were physically when you were a baby. You have new cells within you. Now the question is, if we have new cells within us, then how come we're growing older? Well, that is because in the replicating process of your cells, there are mistakes being made. DNAs are replicated, and there are mistakes in the replicating process. So to create aging and also corruption in your body. These replicating processes, eventually, they accumulate, and then you become who you are today. Your heart, your lungs, your skin, whatever it is, doesn't work as well as it used to, all because of the mistakes which are happening on those levels. Now, this is corruption. This is something which we all experience in our lives because God has warned us about this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God warned us and said that if you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
In fact, what happened in our lives is this, is that the day which we ate of the fruit, the process of death indeed begun. We had began to die. We died spiritually that day. We also will die physically eventually in our lives. Now, spiritually, we're dead. We're dead in the sense that we have become dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We have become inclined toward evil. We have been kind toward sinful heart, sinful action, sinful thoughts. Jesus actually said this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He said, from all of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This is from the heart. In fact, we are little sin factories. We produce sin all the time. Therefore, in our hearts, we're not inclined to God anymore, even though God has made us to be such. Even though we're created to be eternal beings, forever living for God, forever worshiping God, because of that one moment of the sin, we have adopted sin nature. In that sin nature, we have died unto God. Not only so, we will also die one day physically. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that human beings are destined to die once. All of us are destined to die. And we're to die physically at one point in our lives. But that is not the end. If he see death, we will see also eventual spiritual judgment after that, because it continues on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, after that comes judgment. We will be judged by God. The reason why we're judged by God is because our God is a holy and righteous judge, and He cannot tolerate evil. Though we are evil, He will not be able to receive us in His presence, so therefore He has to judge us for our sins forever and ever. If we do not have salvation, we will endure the eternal wrath of God. However, our God is salvation. Our God is love. Our God is compassion. So therefore, he made the way for us to be received into his presence again. And this is done through the Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Jesus, he came and lived a perfect life. And his perfect life, he gave to you and to me as righteousness. The reason why this needed to happen is because we need to live a righteous life before God in order to be received into, into his presence. Now, none of us lived that life, but Jesus lived that life for us and gifted to us as a gift if we believe unto him. Then he died on the cross. As he died on the cross, he was paying for the punishment that is due us for our sins. Sins deserve punishment because our God is the holy and righteous judge. Now, we could not ever endure the punishment by ourselves, because that's eternity of hell for us. Jesus, however, endured that for us, so therefore we no longer have to endure the wrath of God. Lastly, what happened is that Jesus rose from the dead. This perhaps is the culminating factor, the culminating truth that wraps everything together. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we were not sure if Jesus had totally conquered sin and conquered death. But the fact that he rose from the dead showed us that he had completed his work and that we could trust in his work that we can believe on his work as truth. And as he rose from the dead, we will also rise with him. Amen. This is the gospel truth. This is something that we should celebrate. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we've been finding is God telling us regarding his truth. He's telling us that we will rise again. He's been giving us evidence after evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And finally here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the last few sections, in the last few verses, we're seeing Jesus being praised God is offering praise, Paul is offering praise through this section to the Lord Jesus Christ, celebrating resurrection, celebrating the victory which we have in him. There's three victories which we'll have. 
in Christ as a result of this promise of resurrection, which we see here. And the first victory is this. As Christ resurrected from the dead, we will also resurrect, and the victory is that we will be victorious over death. We will be victorious over death. Let's read this in verse 50 to 54. It says this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, this is a wonderful, wonderful section which Paul is using to praise the very fact that we are going to be resurrected from the dead. We're going to enjoy benefits. We're going to enjoy immortality. But before we get to this section, in terms of understanding what Paul is saying here, what God the Holy Spirit is talking to us about, we have to understand what 1 Corinthians is all about. If you're new here, we must understand that 1 Corinthians is written as a letter to the Corinthian church to encourage the Corinthian church to be a healthy church. There are a variety of different issues which are written. However, the issues are surrounding the issues of service, uh, problems regarding the church, regarding uh, them not serving one another, not being unified. So Paul is encouraging the church to be unified, to be in love with one another, to serve one another. And this is the purpose of the letter of 1 Corinthians. However, as we come to chapter 15, what we're finding out is Paul writing to the Corinthian church regarding doctrine. It turns out that you need to believe in the right things in order to be a healthy church. It cannot just function in such a way in a practical manner and in interaction with one another to be a healthy church if you know how to interact with each other in a healthy way. You also need to know the right things. You also need to believe in the right things. Specifically, you need to believe in the gospel. You need to believe the truth of the gospel, and all of us have to believe in the right things, and the unified belief causes us to be a unified church. Here in this section, what we're finding out, Paul is taking the Corinthian church through the teaching of resurrection. The reason why is because the Corinthian church had been wavering on this doctrine. They had been bending on this doctrine according to really the outside forces which are coming against them. The outside forces of the Corinthian church, the outside forces actually surrounding the Corinthian church, namely the secular world, has been teaching or has been uh, influencing the Corinthian church not to believe in the resurrection of Christ, simply because the Greco-Roman world, they do not believe in the resurrection. They thought of it as a foolish thing. They thought of it as a, a thing which is not something that you should believe in. The reason why is because they thought the body is material and the spirit is inherently good. So if the body is material, it gets buried to the ground. You don't ever have to worry about that again. Your spirit gets received back to the heavens. Eventually gets reincarnated back to earth and into another body. So therefore, you do not have to believe in the resurrection. So the Corinthian church, as it grew, it began to think, you know what? Maybe we don't have to believe in the resurrection. Maybe we don't have to hold on to this doctrine. People are mocking us. People are saying that we're foolish for believing in the resurrection of Christ. So therefore, we are going to just maybe not teach this doctrine, and perhaps we can get along as, uh, as a better church as a result of that, have more people come to church, have more people enjoying our body if we do not teach this doctrine. And Paul says this, and really what the First Corinthians chapter 15 is all about is that you need to hold on to this doctrine of resurrection. You need to believe in this resurrection. Because we do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, you actually are not a true believer at all. It's a requirement of our salvation. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we see this. Paul is saying to another church, another letter, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are two requirements. You need to believe that Jesus is Lord. You also need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You need to believe that Jesus had been risen in order to be saved. So coming back to the Corinthian church, Paul is saying, I need you to stand firm on this truth. I need you to understand this truth. I need you to not waver around this truth. So therefore, he delivered to them this teaching again, the teaching which he has already taught them, but we get to enjoy it here as he's teaching them again what resurrection is all about. He said resurrection is something that has been prophesied from the Old Testament long ago. It's not something which Paul is made up. It's not something Paul is just giving his opinion about, but God the Holy Spirit has been writing to God's people for of all times, even in the Old Testament, regarding the resurrection of Christ. It is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, Paul said, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. Everything he taught was in accordance with Scriptures. He declared that Christ lived and died and rose again. It's all written in Scripture. We saw in Isaiah chapter 53, which is written hundreds of years ago uh, from the time of Apostle Paul, and also Psalm chapter 16, how Christ has been proclaimed as the one who had been risen or will be risen from the dead. Then Paul talked about how the fact that if you do not believe in the resurrection, your faith is in vain. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Your faith is in vain if you do not believe in the resurrection, namely because you do not know if you're still in your sin. You are actually still in your sin if resurrection did not take place. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says so. The reason why we need to believe in the resurrection is because resurrection was a victory dec declaration. It is a demonstration of the fact that Jesus had completed his work. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, perhaps you can say death and sin killed him or that he was a stalemate or that he paid partially your sin, but he did not actually complete it all. And if Jesus did not completely pay for your sins, you are still under your sins because you're a little sin factory as I'm a little sin factory and we're still producing sin. And the fact that if he did not resurrect means that he did not finish paying for it. He was killed by sin. He was destroyed by sin. If he was destroyed by sin, then we certainly will also be destroyed by sin as well. And if you're living your life sacrificially for the Lord, you're serving the Lord and giving up your preferences for the Lord as Jesus calls you to, namely you're to pick up your cross and follow him, Jesus doing this for God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, you're of all people most to be pitied because in the end it makes no difference at all. The, your resurrection or the fact that you're not going to resurrect means that your ending, your result is going to be exact same as those who did not offer their lives up in a similar way. But Jesus did resurrect. And because Jesus did resurrect, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30, Paul says, I'm in danger every hour. Also in verse 31, he says he dies every day. Ultimately, it's because he knows that his works will be rewarded and God will look upon him with favor as God looks upon all the things, all the things he has done. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, we see this, that God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints as you still do. He will reward us, and therefore resurrection makes all of our works for Christ worth it. And what we saw last week was the image of our resurrection. Given that we're going to resurrect from the dead, we're very, very interested in what we're going to look like in the moment of our resurrection. 
Paul gives an example. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 43, It is sown in dishonor. Your current body is in dishonor, but you will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's going to be raised in power. You're going to be powerful. You're going to be glorious. You're going to be imperishable. This is something that which we should look forward to. Now here in chapter 15, verse 50, which is where we're going to start off again, Paul is giving to us the reasons why we should have a resurrected body. The reason why we should have a resurrected body here is found in verse 50. is because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Simply because of this. Today, in your body, you are perishable. Your body very much is perishable. And the kingdom of God is imperishable. The kingdom of God cannot be destroyed. And you, as a perishable person, can be destroyed. So therefore, you cannot enter into the eternal kingdom of God being who you are today. Now, human body and human soul composes of human being. A human being is composed of two parts, your soul and your body. This is seen clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, in which God has made us from dust, so our bodies made of dust, and then he breathed into us so that we would be a living being. We're composed of a soul of both soul and body. As a result of that, we are that. And so therefore, when we sin against God, our body has become tainted. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we read about this, that God, uh, God who before we sinned said to us, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we did, and we died. Our flesh has been tainted by sin. We're tainted by sin nature. And so our flesh has become perishable. And because of this, we will not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. The only way that we can enter into the kingdom of God, being who we are, both composed of soul and body, is that we will have to inherit a spiritual body. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. See, we currently have a natural body, but eventually in the resurrection of our human body, we will have a spiritual body, a body that is of power, a body that is of honor, a body that's imperishable, a body that can do things which we cannot do today, a body that can arrive in the kingdom of God without hindrance, a body which could be in the presence of God without being destroyed. We need that body in order to be in the kingdom of God. The same body that Jesus has, we will have. As 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, when we see him, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is what we're looking forward to. Now, as we are looking forward to this body, some people may ask the question, how is going to happen? How is it that we're going to inherit this body in the moment that we inherit it? That is what Paul is getting at here in verse 51. He says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. This mystery is something which has not been clearly told to us before. A mystery in the Bible is something which now God is revealing, which has not been previously revealed. For example, the fact that you and I are here as a church of God, receiving the grace of God of salvation, is a mystery to the people of the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says this mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is a mystery. 
The fact that church exists and that Jews are not currently being saved as a nation of God is a mystery to the Jews. However, this is how it is happening right now. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you another mystery. The mystery of your resurrection. Specifically, in verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're not going to all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. You're not going to all be dead, but we're going to all be changed. Some of us are going to be alive. Some of us are going to be dead. But at the moment where some of us are alive and some of us are dead, we're going to be changed. So when's that going to be? Anytime. Paul is saying anytime because that is now. You are here today. You are a saved child of God. But perhaps some members of your family, they also were saved child of God. But they have been uh, dead. They, they have been sleeping. They passed away. So Paul says it could actually happen at any time because it's going to happen at a time where some of us are asleep and some of us are alive. And at that moment, we will all be changed. Specifically, the change is going to happen in this way. In verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word moment here is the word atomos. Atomos is the word which we get atom from. Not atom, but atom. Atom, the, the little element, like oxygen is an atom or hydrogen is an atom. The very atom in the moment of the night, the very smallest in, uh, moment in the twinkling of an eye, in the most smallest indivisible unit, you are going to be changed. It says in the twinkling of the eye. The twinkling of the eye is the blink of an eye. Do you know how fast that is? A twinkling of the eye is about one over one thousandth of a second. It's real fast. So sometimes we have this picture from TV and from movies in which we see a rapture, right? Like your rapture is basically you are slowly being taken up and people who are here on earth just watching you flow into the air being gathered in the heavens and wherever that would be. That actually isn't the case at all. It's going to happen at a speed that is so fast that you simply cannot see it. You cannot see the twinkling of an eye. You cannot see the blink of an eye. You look at a person, you don't say, oh, okay, that person blinked three times. You hardly saw the blink. So it's going to be the rapture. So it's going to be this catching up to the Lord. You're going to be next to a person. If the person is not a believer, he's going to see you, and next moment, he's not going to see you anymore. You're going to be with the Lord, and that is how it is going to happen. So that is how we're going to be caught up to the Lord. As far as our surroundings is concerned, in verse 52, it says, In the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This is going to be a trumpet. A trumpet will sound. The trumpet is the gathering sound for the believers of God. For example, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24, God says to Moses, Speak to all the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. God is saying this. I want you to blow a trumpet, and we blow a trumpet. You are calling all the people to come to gather in this holy convocation. And thus, this is also going to be the way that rapture happens. When the trumpet sounds, all of us as believers, those who are dead will be raised to heaven. Those who are still alive will also be caught up with them. We're all going to be gathered up with the Lord, and we are going to be changed. We're going to be raised imperishable. We're going to be forever immortal. This is something which is also talked about in another parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. We see this. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
The Lord himself descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This is another parallel passage described to us that we will be caught up with the Lord, and those who are dead will be rising up again, as we will also rise with them, and forever we will be in our resurrected bodies. And this is what verse 53 and verse 54 indicates to us. For at that moment, when that happens, this perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body will put on immortality and shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. No more will we experience death. No more will we experience corruption. Forever we will be with the Lord. Forever we're going to be immortal. This word swallowed up is actually something that is taken from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, where Paul actually quotes this verse as is written. It's written in that verse, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will swallow up death. He will swallow up the things which is seeking to conquer us. See, forever death has been seeking to swallow us up, right? You run away from death. You're not wanting to die. All of us don't want to die. But death eventually will catch up to you, and it will swallow you up. But there's a day coming which death itself will be swallowed up by something much, much greater, much more powerful, namely life of God itself, by the resurrection of our human bodies. This word swallowed up is actually also used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. We see this wonderful display of the word swallowed up, which will really bring to us a wonderful illustration of how we to celebrate this very fact that death is to be swallowed up. It says this, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they were attempting to do the same, were drowned. This word drowned is the same word as swallowed up. So all of us today, you can imagine yourself being in this place as the people of Israel were in when they're trying to cross the Red Sea and then the Egyptians were chasing after them. And we were all running, right, from the Egyptians. If the Egyptians was dead, Egyptians are chasing after us. We're running away and we're seeking to, seeking to be escaping from this prospect of death. And as we're escaping this prospect of death, we're scared. None of us want to die. So therefore, what happened to the Egyptians is that they're chasing the Israelites. Israelites are running away from the Egyptians. All of us are doing so. And as we're being chased, what happened is this. As we cross the Red Sea, the Red Sea is a figurative language to say that we're actually going into the promised land. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that as you've been baptized, you walk through the Red Sea, you're actually entering into faith in Christ. We're crossing the Red Sea. Death is seeking to chase us, but in the end, death actually is swallowed up by the Red Sea, which comes against them. Egyptians were swallowed up. Death eventually will also be swallowed up. That's something to be celebrated. Until then, until then, we are going to have to deal with this problem of death. We're going to because some of us, prayerfully, Lord willing, we will not face death because the Lord comes. But others, if we were to die before the Lord comes, we will have to face this prospect. And it's a painful prospect. But then in our hearts, we're waiting for this resurrection because we know that in this resurrection, death will be finally defeated. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2 to 4, Paul, in his crying out to the Lord, displayed this hard attitude of groaning and waiting for the resurrection. It says this, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. But while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, 
not that we will be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, Paul says, I want to be clothed, and I'm groaning, longing for heavenly dwelling, which will never corrupt. I'm longing for this place, but I'm longing also for the resurrection of my body. Job looked forward to this in Job chapter 19, verse 25, 26. As we know, Job is going through this terrible suffering, this terrible, uh, terrible uh, pain in his body, which God has placed in, in Job's life as a trial for his life. He said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last will stand upon the earth, and after that my skin, or after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so what we see here is this. We're looking forward to the resurrection because we know that in that resurrection, every pain, every sorrow, every human weakness, the fact that we're going to die, the fact that we're corrupting, is going to be all swallowed up. We'll have victory, victory over death. Not only we're going to have victory over death, there's a second victory, which we see here, the victory over sin, victory over sin. We see this in verses 50 to 57. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see another victory here. This victory is over sin. We see this in verse 50 to 56. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. This is a quotation, by the way, from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14 which God says this to, and he says to the Israelites, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? God says this, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you from Sheol. I'm going to rescue you from death. Namely, I'm going to remove the sting of death from you. No longer are you going to be stinged or stung by death. This is a picture like of a bee, a bee that's buzzing around. And B is buzzing around, and the B is powerful simply because it has a sting. If the B doesn't have a sting, it's buzzing around, but it really has no power over you. It may annoy you, it may scare you, but at the end, it has no power over you because it cannot sting you. This is what Paul is saying here. The sting of death is sin, but then the sting of death has been removed. How has it been removed? It turns out that that sting has been stuck in one person already, Jesus Christ. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross, he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we see this. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He became sin for us. So therefore, as that bee which is death stung that sin, which is the sting of sin, into Jesus, as it rips it out, its belly falls apart because sin, you know, a bee without a sting cannot live for long. That sin is stuck into Christ. And as, the, as this bee now flies around us, it really has no power over us. It may seek to threat us, uh, threaten us, but really has no real threat toward us because we know that no longer it can sting anyone because that sting has already been left in Christ. Where is sting? It's nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found in impacting us, at least. And in verse 56, we see the power of sin is the law. That's another element of destruction which has been removed from us. So what is the law? Well, the law turns out to be good. It is not a bad thing, even though it seems to be a, described as a bad thing here. It isn't. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, we see Paul saying this. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had not been the law, I would not have known sin, for I have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the law is not sin. The law is actually holy. The law actually is the perfect demonstration of who God is. However, what we do with the law is something completely different. You see, even though the law tells us to be good, what we do, because we have been corrupted by the sin nature, we begin to take something that is good and use it as an opportunity for evil. So when the law tells us not to covet, we begin to say, you know what? What is covet? Maybe I could covet. Maybe I should covet because the law tells me not to covet. I wonder what it means to covet. That's what, the, what our sin nature does. That's not the fault of the law. That's the fault of our own hearts. That's why it is said in Romans chapter 7, verse 8 through 11, but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment producing me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me, for sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. That's the reality of our human heart. It's not that the law is bad. Law isn't bad. But we, as human beings, with our sin nature, take the ideas of the law. You should not do this. You should do that. We begin to say, well, what if I do the exact opposite? Because we have a sin nature to want to rebel against God. Not only does the law cause us to want to sin against God even more, not because the law is the problem, because we are the problem, the law also condemns us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, we see this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Therefore, what we see here is this. The law actually has power over us to condemn us. The law actually produces, or not us, not the law, but we as sin nature, producing us all kinds of desire to sin. And the law actually was an opportunity for us to even proliferate in our sin. All that will be gone at the moment of resurrection. We see this in verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the moment that we receive our resurrected bodies, no longer will we interact with the law of God in those ways. When the law of God comes, when the law of God is spoken to us, when we know that these are things you should do and these are things that you should not do, we're going to be in perfect agreement with the law. We're going to say, wonderful law of God. We're going to be obeying that. We're going to be in the a, in a wonderful presence of God in that. We're going to be enjoying what God is telling us instead of having the opposite effect in which you are taking that as an opportunity to sin. No longer would, it, would the law have that negative impact or negative effect upon our lives, nor will the law judge us anymore because we will actually live in perfect harmony with the law of God. Until then, until then, while we are in sinful nature, we're going to have to battle sin. We're going to have to battle the sin nature in us. We have to battle to fight and, and to fight to make sure that we live in holiness of God. That is a battle that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 talks about, which Peter is saying to the believers, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're going to have to fight, battle. We're going to have to fight against the desires of the flesh, my, my internal desire to sin against God. And that's a constant battle. That's a battle that never, ever stops while we're here on earth. I kind of uh, reflect upon that this week and compare that to building maintenance. Even the building maintenance of our church here in our building. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were maintaining this building in the manner of uh, putting tar upon the steeple area because we noticed that there are water leaking because there's been a lot of rain in our days, in this year. 
And we put these trays in the attic to catch the water. The moment that we see the water in the tray, we begin to go up there and say, okay, which are the, which are the parts that are leaking? We kind of locate where the leak is and we patch it up. There's a constant work to patch up things here in our church, namely because this building needs constant maintenance. There are certain areas of this building are maintained more than other parts because some parts are more vulnerable than others. For example, the steeple area, there's a lot of cre- uh, crevices and, cr- uh, and corners and different areas where joints are connected. We're constantly watching to make sure that these areas are firmly intact so that elements, when they do pound uh, upon the building, they would not uh, make, these, uh, make those parts leak or, or cause further damage to the building. We know that because we know our building. We know that we're vulnerable in such ways. Now, you also know your building. The reason why you should know your building because is because you know that there are certain sins which you are particularly vulnerable to. Now, you are, there, you are uh, made in different ways. So all of us are made in different ways. So all of us are um, corrupted in different ways in our sinful flesh. Uh, you may be struggling with lust, as more others do. You may be struggling with jealousy, as more than others would do. You may be struggling with, with uh, impatience, as more than others would do. You may be struggling with uh, anger, than more than others would do. You may be struggling with certain sins in your life that others may not struggle as much as you do. And when you know you're building, what do you do? You have to patch up those areas, right? It's like, hey, this is going to leak. If I don't patch up the area, you're going to get that big stain on the roof. And everybody's going to see. So you're watching yourself. You say, you know what? I know that I'm prone to sin. I know I'm prone to anger. I know I'm prone to lust. I know I'm prone to impatience. So I'm watching my life. I'm making precautions in my life to not to walk in those things. Or when these things begin to exemplify themselves in my life, begin to watch and pray and, 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 or fast or, 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 ask, or do your devotion, whatever it is, to, to bring yourself back to the state of holiness. This is what human maintenance needs to be in terms of living in a life of holiness unto the Lord. Now, this is a constant maintenance. And we all get tired at times. And we all fail at times. Because sometimes we do leak and we do sin. As 1 John uh, chapter 1 says, he who says that he does not sin is a liar. But then at the same time, we don't want to continue in sin. So therefore, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control. I have to constantly discipline. I have to constantly, figuratively eat well and exercise and, and, not, and watch out against the junk food, meaning that, meaning that I have to do that spiritually in my life. I cannot be watching certain things. I have to be doing my devotion. I have to exercise spiritually so that I can keep it under control, so that I can eliminate the problems of sin in my life, the problems of sin which I know I'm most prone to. Still, it's tiring, Right? It's very tiring to keep watching. I don't have to keep patching things up. I mean, I have to keep doing all these things. It's, it's tiring, so we do fail at times. So Paul says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 22 to 23. He recognized this fight. He accepted this fight. He said, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. By seeing my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I see a, a constant fight. The weather is not going to stop. The rain is not going to stop. I have to keep watching for leaks in my life. Who is going to rescue me? He said in verse 24, Wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he said, Thanks be to God. Eventually he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, This is how I'm going to be delivered. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have to wait for this adoption as sons. We have to wait for the finality of our bodies, namely our resurrection. 
Until then, we're going to fight. But we know that God will complete us. And we're going to be completed in such a way that no longer we'll be tempted to sin ever again. We'll be in this place and no longer we have to maintain our building. No longer do we have to be watching out for it. No longer are we going to even have the possibility of a leak anymore. <laughs> because Romans, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, He who began a good work, that is God who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful, wonderful news. That's a wonderful news. No longer do we have to battle sin anymore because we will be forever victorious over sin. Isn't that great news? Imagine yourself don't have to maintain your building. You, know, you, know, you don't have to maintain your house. One day it's coming, but you don't have to maintain your current bodily building. You'll be in perfect shape for the Lord. There is a third victory, though. As we see, there's a victory over sin and victory over death. There's also victory in this life. There's victory in this life. Verse 58, we see this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we see Paul saying, this is how your life should be. So he begins with this in verse 58, therefore, whenever therefore is there in the Bible, we always ask the question, what is it there for? right? Therefore, it's there to tell us that this is a conclusion to everything Paul has been talking about. He's been telling them about resurrection. He's been giving them evidence of resurrection. He's been giving them the result of resurrection. If you're resurrected, you should live your life in this way. Or you're going to face resurrection, you should live your life in this way. And this is what he's saying. You should be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Three things. You should be steadfast. That means that you should be in a manner in which you're faithful, in which you're steady, it's really a word that is encompassing immovable as well. You're not easily moved. You're not easily swayed. You're going to continue to do what you're doing, even though there may be distraction or false doctrine going around you. You're not going to listen to them. You're going to listen to God. You're going to be held to the firm foundation of Christ. This is what God's calling us to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 also, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, there are doctrines around us. There's human cunning around us. There are many other influences around us trying to toss us and to and fro so that we would not hold on to the doctrine of Christ, which has been revealed to us in the very beginning. Paul says this, I want you to hold on to what I told you. I wish that you would not be so wavering as you already have been on the doctrine of resurrection. You have been listening to the Greco-Roman world and what they're teaching you that resurrection is not true. They've been mocking you and you've been listening to their mocking. You have been wavering. You have been bending on this truth which has been clearly taught in Scripture. I wish that you were immovable. And as you are immovable and hope that you are now as I explained to you the evidence of resurrection, what you should do is this. You should always abound in the work of the Lord. We see this in verse 58. The word abounding in the work of the Lord is the same word which means to exceed or to overachieve, is to overflow. You should overflow in the work of the Lord. It's opposite of you working at a job in which you don't really like and you're just going to do the bare minimum to get by. Paul says, don't just do the bare minimum. Don't just do whatever it is to, to just get by. Like, don't just come on uh, don't just come on, just on Sundays and, and go to church and thinking I've checked off the checklist. You actually are going to do more than that. Do far more than what you think is expected of you. 
In fact, what you know this is to be true in verse 58. Whatever that you do, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Do far more. Overexceed. And interestingly, as we're looking at this overexceeding and also this work of overbounding and also uh, being able to exert ourselves in such a way that we do this consistently, it comes after this process in which we have become immovable or steadfast. In order for you to overabound, to overachieve, to, to, to overflow with the work of the Lord, you must first be immovable and steadfast. For this reason, that is why we have Bible studies, and that's why we teach you theology. That's why even Sunday mornings we do teach you doctrine. It's because we want you to hold on to the truth of Christ in the Bible in an immovable way because the world around us is always seeking to cause us to waver. Did you know that in this world today, in the world of Christian theology or the world of Christian interaction, this is a word, a movement called deconstructionism. Deconstructionism means that you're going to question everything. It's a very popular term in our culture today among the younger generation because we appreciate dialogue more than affirming what truth is or more than confirming what truth is. No longer are we in this world of modernism which we're going to find out what truth is. We have become postmodern in a sense that as long as we're having a dialogue about this, as long as we're talking about this, as long as we show you respect about this, Everybody could be whatever they want to be. You could be a he, you could be a she, you could be a they, you could be a it. Whatever you want to be, as long as we talk about it, you could be whatever you want to be. And so Christian deconstructionism basically says, well, can I deconstruct all the things which Christianity says that this is what you need to be or you should be as a Christian and throw away all these things and just retain ourselves with the love of Jesus. As long as you're loving God, as long as God loves you, however that way, however way you feel that is, uh, you're okay. So you question everything. You begin to question whether homosexuality is something which is taught in the Bible or uh, taught against in the Bible or not. Namely, that can you be a homosexual or can you not be a homosexual if you're a Christian? The Bible is very clear that you cannot live a homosexual lifestyle consistently if you call yourself a Christian. Now, those people who are deconstructing their faith say, you know what, I have Christian friends who are living an active homosexual lifestyle and they seem to be uh, really dedicated in their faith, so I'm going to throw that away and say, you know what, you could be a homosexual, you could live a homosexual lifestyle and still be a Christian. It's an act of deconstructionism. Others are saying, well, can women be pastors? Well, we say, you know what, I got a woman friend who is a, a tremendous um, uh, gifted teacher, and she's going to seminary, she's going to take up a church, I think she'll do wonderful for the church. So I'm going to throw that away too, because I see a, a friend of mine who is gifted, and, uh, and, and that she seems to have a great desire, she's a nice person. And others are saying, you know what, I could... Uh, be a Christian without going to church. And this is a very, very popular one among the young people because people are hurt, right? A lot of young people are hurt by church. So they say, you know what? I'm not going to be hurt by church anymore. I'm not going to be in church anymore. I'm going to just have my own Christian faith uh, for, before God. I'm going to do it all alone by myself in the guise of healing. And so in this attitude they call humility, they're actually saying, you know what? It's actually arrogant of you to hold on to things of truthful nature and say this is the truth and you should believe onto this. However, these people, as we see, and I've been pastor for a long time now, as I see them, I have friends, and I remember one young friend who was going through this process, eventually what ends up happening is that they lose their faith altogether. They don't have their faith anymore. They could be loud on social media. They could be critical. They're like those uh, uh, little kids that spit spitballs in the back room of the class as people are teaching doctrine. They're you know, just spitting at them and trying to get people to be distracted from what they're teaching. And they've been critical of churches, but they themselves have no real faith. 
And pastor actually ended up taking, this, taking up this deconstruction ideology and writing a book saying, oh, this is what you should do. This is a new way of leading the church. But only five people buy the book because they don't have a real ministry. They don't have a real church. They actually go out there and become a motivational speaker. And after a while, they also fade away. In order for you to have your labor in the Lord to be defined by overabounding work, you have to have firm foundation. That means that you are confident of your work. If you're not confident of your work, you're always casting doubt upon yourself and seeking to cast doubt in other people's lives regarding what doctrine is and what is taught in the Bible, then you will not be able to be profitable for the Lord. You may be able to do events. You may be able to be a public uh, a motivational speaker once in a while as you invite it to your church, but you don't have a consistent ministry. In order for you to have a consistent ministry, you need to stand on truth. This is what Paul has taught also to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, teaching him that you may know how to behave in the house of the God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church of God should be a pillar, should be a buttress of truth. We should teach truth here. This is not a place where we're all going to have a dialogue and have an opinion. Certainly, we ought to hear each other, but at the end of the day, we need to arrive in a conclusion. The dialogue which we have is not the end to itself. It's not that we have a dialogue and all of a sudden we feel that we're talking to each other and we're fine. No, the dialogue itself is not fine. We need to come to a conclusion. Either you're right or I'm right. Either you're wrong or I'm wrong. And as far as we know, if we look at Scripture, we know that Scripture is always right. If we hold on to the immovable truth of Scripture, then we, when we serve the Lord, we know that we could be confident in what we're doing. Otherwise, we're not really sure, right? And we will be wavering, and we all do it once in a while, and we say, you know what, should I do that again? I'm not really sure because people don't really like it. But if you are confident that you're doing for the Lord, and you will continue to do it, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 or 24, we see this motivation. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ. You see, if you know what the Word of God says, then you can actually serve Him confidently. That is how you are going to bound in the work of the Lord. It is knowing that you're serving the Lord and not men. You don't have to look at people's faces. You don't have to look at my face. You don't have to look at any other's face, your friend's face, or anybody's face to know that you are doing the right thing because you know that God has told you what the right thing is and you're convicted of it because you have read it in His Word. So therefore, we as a church, we seek to produce that conviction in you. The church is not a place where we just have dialogue and have a social environment. The church is a place where we have become more and more convicted of the truth which we know to be true. And that's why we have Bible studies. It's good to be convicted. It's good to be, uh, to be a one person of conviction. As long as you're not a jerk about it, it's good that you are convicted, and therefore you can actually teach others what your convictions are. That's why I want to encourage, that you, encourage for you to have, that you need to have more and more of this personality in you. That is why we teach Bible studies. We teach Bible studies. We go through systematic theology. We go through biblical manhood and womanhood. We go through Old Testament and New Testament survey, all for the purpose of producing that conviction in you so that when you walk out there, when people say, hey, I believe in something else, we can say, you know what? I think you're wrong because of this and this and this so that you can actually have a conversation to draw another person to the Lord. We also have small groups. Small groups read good books, Christian disciplines or spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, spiritual disciplines for the church. We're at through just uh, 
a, a month ago, a few months ago, Knowing God by Jared Packer. And as we're going to enter into a new small group, we're going to go through the attributes of God by A.W. Tozer. These are good books that tell us who God is so that you may be firmly established in your faith. So would you join? If you join your small group and you're joining the Bible study, you will become more and more firmly established. And then as you're firmly established, you could do exactly what Paul is calling us to do next, which is that you can actually be abounding in the work of the Lord. Some of us may wonder, why am I not serving God? Why am I not abounding? Why am I just doing the minimum? It's because you are not firmly established in the truth which you know to be true. You're doubting. You're saying, well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But the more which you are firmly established, the more which you believe the truth of Scripture with conviction, the more that you will serve God because the more steady the foundation of your life is. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. As you build on the foundation of Christ, everyone's work will become manifest, but they will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. You're building yourself on Christ. As you're building yourself on Christ, you know that God's going to look at your work, and he's going to assess your work, and you can be confident before God for your work. And this is not just talking about pastoral uh, staff or pastors in general, but it's talking about all of us because we all are going to be assessed by God in this way. Each one of us, because this is not talk, because it's not talking about only pastors are going to be going through this fire, but all of us are going to be going through this fire because we all have been given spiritual gifts by the Lord, and spiritual gifts are given to you so that you may serve God with those spiritual gifts. What happened to the one person that didn't serve God with the spiritual gift? When God gives him the one talent, he said, "You know what? I'm going to bury it and we'll return it straight back to God." What did God do? God said, "You are an unfaithful servant, right?" So if you have been given spiritual gifts, and all of us have, because we saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also in Romans chapter 12, each one of us have received a spiritual gift. If you have received a spiritual gift, then what? Use it for the glory of God. It's administration, it's gifts, such as exhortation, encouragement, teaching, mercy, leadership, helps, different ways. You could do those things in a formal way within the church or do those things in an informal way within the church. You just find the person and say, I'm going to serve you in that way. And you can serve that way consistently, ultimately, again, because you know it's the right thing to do because your life has been founded on upon, upon the Word of God. This is what we need to be. So therefore, Paul here is teaching us how resurrection of Christ has led us to the point in which we are going to be in the place which we are immovable, steadfast, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We do have victory. We have victory in a variety of ways which we saw here today. We have victory over death. We have victory over sin. And finally, what we have is victory in this life as well. A victory over all places in our Christian living because Jesus Christ had won the battle for us. See, the door is already open. Would you step into it? That's all we, we need to do is step into it. All we need to do is hold on to Christ, and we will be victorious. The victory which we have is not something which we earn in and of ourselves. The victory which we have is something that is given. There's a story told of a, a, a magician, a famous magician uh, named Houdini. Houdini was a famous magician and, and escape artist who is known for his stunts. He's able to escape these places which have been trapped, which has been trapped, which has been handcuffed. He's been escaping from box of water and himself being handcuffed. And he's able to pick the lock and get out of that box. He's been showing to the world, and he's one of the best in his craft, how good as he is at escaping traps and escaping prison jails and different kind of things. 
which he's been locked in. So one time there was a sheriff, a local sheriff that came to him and said, I bet that you cannot escape my jail. Houdini said, challenge accepted. So the sheriff brought Houdini to his jail and handcuffed him and closed the door and let him have it. And Houdini said, I'll get out of this in an instant. And Houdini had this particular technique that he could use, which he could swallow something and regurgitate it back out. So he swallowed a lock pin and regurgitated it back out. He was able to use the lock pin to pick the lock. And pick the lock and his handcuff, easily done. The handcuff comes off, comes off, and he went for the door. He says, okay, now I'm going to open the door. I'm going to show the sheriff how I can just escape this jail without any hindrance at all. It's going to be an easy task for me. So he's picking this lock. However, he's getting a weird sensation because as he picked this lock, he cannot hear the normal sound that he usually hears. He hears a click, and he knows that he's in the right place. But as he's picking this lock, he cannot hear that click at all. The lock is a weird lock, a strange lock. Ten minutes pass, pass, 20 minutes pass. He simply cannot hear the click of the lock. Finally, all the time passed, and the sheriff walks in and says, well, you cannot get out? He's so confused. He said to the sheriff, what kind of lock is this? What kind of lock is this? Well, sheriff just opened the door. It turned out the lock was not locked at all. You cannot pick an open lock. It simply cannot work. See, this is really an illustration for us in this world as well. See, so many of us try to pick the lock of death, do we not? We try to pick the lock of death and seeking to open that thing, but many of us couldn't. And so we sit in that jail and we rot in a jail of death. But the lock is already open. It's open through Christ. All we have to do is step through it by faith. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. So would you hold on to the truth of Christ? Would you hold on to the life of Christ? Would you consider him to be your way? As you walk in his way, as you hold on to him, you can also walk through the door of resurrection and meet him there. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this passage in which we are concluding now here regarding the resurrection of Christ and even our resurrection of our own lives. We know, Lord, that this is extremely impactful for us because um, through this resurrection, we know that we can live in hope. So many of us want a victory. We need a victory in life. And through this resurrection, we do have victory. We have victory through in death. We have victory over death. We have victory over sin. We have victory also in this life. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that we will hold on to our victories and live in the light of it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.